Good morning. Uh, let's see. We are still, wow, we are still in Romans, and we're going to be in Romans for a long time. Um, we kind of, at Christ Chapel, believe in what we call expository preaching. You know, you can have a deposit into a bank account, and you can exposit money or take out of it. And so expository teaching means you kind of pull out of the word, uh, out of the Bible, and find its meaning in context rather than a topical one where if you have a topical series on dating or something, and in, which is not a bad thing, but you can use a little subjective influence on, on your topic and stuff. And so we really believe in saying, like, what did Paul meant? And what was he communicating? And what was he feeling? And, and so we want to show you. And in faith, hope, hopefully that the things that we go through are meaning and, meaningful and relevant to uh, where you guys are in your life at the particular time. But I want to show you uh, kind of where we are in context with Romans. Uh, let's see. Actually, the title of chapter 4 is uh, Working for Grace. And I'll kind of get into that a little bit. But um, first of all, a little bit of Romans review. Uh, but let me pray for my talk uh, before I begin. Lord God, it's, um, it's an honor to, uh, to speak, uh, to share uh, scripture, Lord. And um, the, uh, the time, God, I, I just give it to you. And I pray, Father, that my words would be your words, that my thoughts would be your thoughts. That uh, as a result of this morning's talk, that you would remove some of the barriers which might prevent us from loving you as we ought to from finding joy in you as we ought to, um, and from dedicating our, Lord, our, our lives to you, our futures, our hopes and dreams to you as we ought to. Um, God, honor yourself um, this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, uh, Paul, at the beginning of, cha- or in the beginning of Romans, uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 19, talks about sin, condemnation, and death. And he applies it to those who don't know Christ and that they are without excuse. And he talks about the hypocrites. They're condemned as well. And that the Jews aren't righteous um, as, as well as all. And then finally, he, he ends with saying that, that all humanity is sinful, that they all stand condemned because of their sin, um, because God is righteous and God is, is he's therefore has to be wrathful against, against sin. And then we sort of shift gears entirely, and, he bring, and we talk about salvation. And, and Noel, two weeks ago, and then last week, John talked about justification by faith. And that it was declared in verses 20 through 24, and it was described, and it was directed to all men alike, all men who would believe. And so that's the nature of Paul's argument. And now he begins to illustrate justification by faith in the life of Abraham. And that's what we're going to talk about today, chapter 4, the life of Abraham. And a little bit kind of closing review on John's talk, he talked about propitiation, which is essentially how God's wrath is placated, that God must judge sin because he's a righteous God. And so that we're full of sin, and that because God loves us, um, well, because God hates sin, his wrath is directed towards us. And in response to his love for us, he sent his own son, who is holy and righteous and pure. And Christ took our sin upon himself, and so our sins were gone, and we got the righteousness of Christ, and therefore God's wrath was directed towards Christ, and he was crucified for it. Um, And that's essentially the good news distilled in its essence that for every bad thing that we've ever done or will ever do, Christ suffered for that. Um, think about the sins that you did this past week, that Christ, uh, part of his pain involved our sin. Um, and so chapter 4, working for, uh, working for Grace, Paul's going to uh, anticipate some of the Jews' maybe arguments. They'll think about Abraham. Well, what about Abraham? You know, he was circumcised. He had the law. Those are the things that made him right before God, wasn't it? And he's going to kind of refute those answers. Um, so... We're going to discover 
kind of how similar we are to the religious Jews back then, that, that I, have, I do some things that I think makes me right before God or makes me more liked in his eyes. And I avoid some things because I think God's going to like me more as well. And so I'm influenced by the very same things that some of the Jews were influenced back then. And I think that you might be a little bit like me as well. Um, and then we're going to sort of paint a mosaic of what Abraham's faith looked like. Um, it describes at the end of this chapter, what is the nature of faith? What did it look like? And then how is that a challenge for us to have the same faith in God as Abraham did? So let's introduce Abraham's faith. Paul starts off with a couple of questions. He begins, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So he couldn't boast about the fact like, hey, Abraham, I'm circumcised, therefore I get heaven or I get, you know, your righteousness. He couldn't boast in anything. What does the scripture say? And here um, he quotes Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was made righteous not by anything that he did, but because of the faith that he had in God. Now, when, oops, let me go back. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, what does all this mean? And it's kind of thick with words. Basically, he's saying here is if you didn't do a job but got a paycheck for not doing the job, that's what he's saying, um, that you get something for free, uh, that you can't work for it. And in fact, if you try to work for it, it's an insult, and you can't boast about it, but God gives you uh, faith free. He gives you heaven and grace free as a result of your faith. Okay, so now we get into the text. What about circumcision? Now, well, first of all, when I say circumcision, I've said it so much in rehearsing for this talk that all the words have just been messed up, and I'm going to mess it up just to let you know. So if you want to laugh, feel free. Okay, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it only for the Jews or is it for the Gentiles as well? You know, 2,000 years ago, the, the Jews were sort of like, holy mackerel, are you serious? Like, this Christian faith is also for the Gentiles? That Christianity was sort of like the... Uh, the maturation, the maturity of this Jewish faith. And so they were surprised that it could be for the Gentiles. And today we think, like, could Christianity be even for the Jews? And so the, the, the thought has been reversed here. So Paul's going to say, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So the Jews were saying, like, because Abraham was circumcised, because he went through this rite, he's made right before God. God likes him now. But that's not the case because what happened was Abraham was declared righteous and then 14 years later became, you know, God gave him the right of circumcision. Now, we think today that um, there's something I can do that will make God like me or make God or me acceptable in God's eyes. Most people in America would say they believe in God, but this belief doesn't transcend anything. It's just sort of like I believe in Socrates and he wrote or he actually didn't write anything, or Plato wrote about Socrates. And so you can say, yeah, I believe that. But it doesn't change your life. It's just sort of an acceptance of some facts. Um, and James 2.19, it says, the demons believe that God exists and they tremble. And sometimes the demons have more of an honor towards God than people who purport to be Christians. And some people think that if I try hard enough, if I'm a good person, then I'm a good Christian. And that makes me a Christian. And that's actually kind of insulting to God. Uh, imagine if you while you're crossing a street and a semi's heading your way and there's a man and his son walking nearby along the sidewalk and the son runs out and he pushes you out of the way and then he gets hit by the semi, semi is, and is killed. And you dust your, your jeans off and you walk over to the man and you reach into your pocket and you, you pull out 
$7.22 and you hand it to the man and you say, hey, thanks. I mean, that's going to be incredibly insulting to the man that you could pay off such a sacrifice as the one that just occurred. And so that's what we do when we're trying to earn God's approval by the things that we do. We can't earn it. Grace is not to be earned. Um, but rather what we should do is our response should be one of complete brokenness. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what happened. You know, and just have a broken spirit and a humility before God and a changed heart is what he's looking for. Um, and some people think baptism is necessary for salvation, but again, that's not needed as well. So let's move on. So he received the sign of circumcision, a seal um, of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay, now what does this mean? If Abraham was declared righteous before circumcision, then why in the world did God ever give him circumcision? Why go through the whole mess of taking your young baby boys and cutting off the foreskins and doing all this stuff? Why even do that if you could be declared righteous? You know, why have the Lord's Supper and why get baptized and why serve and obey God? And so here's what he's going to bring up right here. And it's two words, which actually the font changed. And so the two words actually is sign and seal. I'll have to change that. My font didn't transfer. So it's a sign and seal. Now, what does that mean? Okay, a sign is a visible object that points to something different and greater than itself. Three weeks ago, um, my wife Jen and I, we had an opportunity to go to New York City. And as we flew into LaGuardia Airport and got a cab, and as we were heading towards the city, we saw various signs like Manhattan seven miles away. Now, the sign wasn't New York City, but it pointed to something greater than itself. The sign had value, but it wasn't the final thing that it it pointed to. So um, a sign points to something greater than itself. A sign also sort of indicates ownership. When we were in New York City, we saw all these tall buildings, and it had like Citibank and, uh, you know, Wall Street, you know, the stock exchange. And so those things indicated ownership. Like whose building was that? You'd see a sign. And then so the sign indicated ownership. It was an advertisement, but it indicated who owned the building as well. In much the same way, circumcision back then was a sign um, that, uh, that points to the promise God made with Abraham. It was sort of like ownership as well, that these are my people, these are my covenant people. And what signifies the fact that they're my covenant people is the act of circumcision that I'm giving to them. And so today we have the Lord's Supper, and that's a sign that points to Christ. And we're told to remember Christ and his death as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, the second one was a seal. Um, for those of you who have gone on a mission trip, you had to get a passport. You get a couple of photos taken, and you fill out all this paperwork, and you send it off to this government agency. And so they send you this passport back, and it has a seal on it. And what the seal means, it indicates that the authority of the United States government stands behind the passport, and it indicates that the person whose picture is inside is a citizen of the United States, and there should be should therefore be accorded all the rights that a citizen is should be afforded. So in much the same way um, that circumcision was sort of a seal to them, like could have sort of sealed the deal, um, baptism is used to sort of seal the deal, like a public testimony of an inward change. And that was hopefully what circumcision provided as well. So all these things that we do are a sign and a seal. They don't confer grace. They don't make us right before God, but they indicate that we are believers. And then these two I'm going to summarize real quick. This one right here says he's a father of Gentiles, and this one says that he's a father of Jews. Because he was circumcised um, after he was declared righteous, he's the father of the Gentiles. And because he was circumcised to begin with, he's the father of the Jews. And he's making this argument towards the, uh, to the Jewish believers at that time.
or the unbelievers. Okay, now what about the law? Okay, so then... Okay, where am I? It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that, we'd, that we would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, some of the promises... We talk about Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness. Well, what were these promises that Abraham had, had faith in? And essentially, it was like, I'll make you a great nation. You know, your offspring will be as, as the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. Um, and all the peoples will be blessed because of you. And God made these promises to, to Abraham. And so Abraham believed in those promises. And because he believed in those promises and had faith in God, that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. God made him right before God's eyes because he had that faith. Now, what is faith? Um, It wasn't necessarily the importance of Abraham's faith as much as it was the object of Abraham's faith. Uh, For example, would you rather have a great faith if you had to go across this frozen lake, a great faith, faith in thin ice or a small faith and thick ice. Obviously, it's the object. It's the nature of the ice. You'd rather have it thick ice than thin ice. And, and the nature of your faith really doesn't matter that much. Because God said if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to move. So if we have a little bit of faith in a huge God, that's what he's shooting for here, not a large faith uh, in humanity. Okay, we alluded to this. Every other religion in the world last week says, you know, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That if we're good, that if we don't be bad, if we follow the rules, then we have the result. And depending on your religion, you know, it's either nirvana or reincarnation or cosmic oneness. If you're a Muslim, it's wine and virgins. If you're a Mormon, you get your own planet and have spiritual wives. So, and it's laughable, but these are what people believe in. And so we believe if I do this, then this will occur. So there's cause and effect. And this whole cause and effect thing and, I, and I'm going somewhere with this, if you follow along with me. This whole cause and effect thing is ingrained in us. And these religions, people believe in these religions because it just makes so much sense. Because you and I, all our lives, we're sort of conditioned the same way. That if we do our chores, we'll get our allowance. So if you look like, my goal is allowance, therefore I have to do chores. If your goal is getting a lot of presents from Santa Claus, you're going to be nice and not naughty. If you want to get in the right college, you get good grades and good SAT scores. If you want your parents' blessing, you'll be a nice kid. If you want to have a good body or be toned or whatever, you're going to work out. Um, And so it goes on and on. Your good college performance means that you'll get a good job. Your good job will mean that you'll get good money. And good money means that you'll have a, a decent retirement. And so there's cause and effect. And so that whole process is ingrained in our brains. And so it's hard to sort of shift out of that into a Christian mindset. So the religious Jews thought the same way. That if we are circumcised, if we follow the law, then God will be pleased with us. He won't be mad at us. He'll bless me. Bad things won't happen to me. And religious Christians are the same way. That if we do the worship thing and read our Bible and share our faith and attend Bible study and do all those things, then God will be pleased with us. And the thing is that the conditional acceptance is dependent upon that. Like, we'll have this as long as we do this. And that's how generally I live my Christian life. It's conditional. Like God's happiness towards me is predicated upon what I do. But that's not the Christian faith. True Christians believe this, that because I'm accepted in Christ, I obey. Because God, because when I say, okay, God, I believe in you. I trust what Christ did on my behalf. Then he gives me 
the security and the purpose and the power and the hope and the joy and the peace of eternal life. And he, and he gives me his presence today that I can have delight in him in each and every day that as I study the word and, and understand its truth, that my life is changed and I have this relationship with God that fulfills basically everything that I'm looking for. And once I have that security in Christ, then I'm able to, to go out and serve him. And so because of that, then I worship as a response. Then I read my Bible and get involved in Bible study or ministries and such. So this must be dependent upon that. Okay. So religious Christians sort of, again, um, what we're all looking for in life is grace. Um, but we use different things to find grace. Like what makes you happy about your life? What, what puts a smile on your face? Is it when maybe you get some new shoes or a new purse or maybe if you've got new tires on your truck? What is it that really makes you happy? These things aren't necessarily bad, but when they're placed above valuing Christ, that's when it becomes bad. Now, these things that make us feel good about ourselves, I'm going to use some religious terminology here. Now, when we trust in Christ, he justifies us. He makes it like we've never sinned before. We're accepted in his sight. We're made right. Now, when we get that new tires or new friends or new jacket or whatever it is, there's a sort of like, I feel good about myself. I feel right. There's a sense of self-justification in my existence that I feel that yeah, this is what it's, it's about in life. And so these things that we sort of labor towards, they're called false saviors. I think that if I have that new thing or if I you know, get that new forerunner or something like that, then I'm going to be truly happy. And those things are false saviors. They're called pseudo-saviors or, or an idol. And so for, for the sake of this argument, they're, we'll call them pseudo-saviors. And it could be materialism, that we have our eyes on grace, that that's what we truly want in life, but we're using a substitute to fill that up. And for example, it could be something materialistic, a box of goodies, you know, what's in your box? What is it that you see tangibly that you could buy that'll give you some sense of rightness and justice, justification on this planet? Um, maybe it's stature and position. Maybe it's having a right boyfriend or girlfriend or the right appearance or getting in the right school or having the, the right friends, um, or the right personality. Maybe it's being funnier or more serious or smarter. Um, basically being like, and you think like, if I get that, then I feel right about myself. And again, there's some truth to that, and that's not necessarily a sin, but when it becomes a value above Christ, that one, that's when it becomes a sin. And for Christians, we do the same thing. You know, if I attend church, write Bible study, then I feel good about it, that I'm a good Christian based upon these actions, and it becomes a false savior. And so what's in your box? What is it that you must have? Um, what is your peace and joy and hope and contentment resting upon? What is it? And, and two questions to ask yourself is what is your greatest treasure and what is your greatest pleasure? Ask yourself those two questions, and that can generally indicate what your idols are or what your false saviors are, what you're placing your hope in. Okay, let's move on. Um, it could be a combination of these pseudo-saviors. You know, maybe it's having this and having this boyfriend um, with getting into the right college, and that's what you pinned all your hopes on. And I'm going to reiterate again, it's not sin unless it becomes more valuable than Jesus Christ. So here's how God's created us. Here's why we're like that. In our heart, in Ecclesiastes, he said God's created eternity in our hearts. And so it's like this wet, wet back, wet, dry shop back that's got an eternal capacity, and we're throwing BBs into it. It's never going to fill. And you're like, how am I going to fill this thing with these BBs? And once we recognize the, the problem in terms of we have this eternal hole in our heart and we're trying to fill it with shoes and 
tires and trucks and friends and stuff. It's not going to happen. We're never going to find true happiness in those things. So we've got to recognize this as we, these things won't fill our hearts, but we don't get off the cycle. We continue to put more things and different things, hoping that we're going to have that, that grace that we're truly looking for, and it never happens. So what we have to recognize then, again, is, is what we truly want. We want grace. We want acceptance. And so the process is we'll buy that new thing. Or maybe one day we'll make a whole bunch of people laugh and we'll feel really good about ourselves. Um, and so we do that thing. And then for a brief period, we have that sense of security. We have that sense of fulfillment in our lives. But then what happens is that leaves you once again. And you have to do that thing or get that thing over and over again. How many purses do you need? How many shoes do I need? You know, it's crazy when you think about it, um, that these things can, can make us happy. So we have to recognize what we truly want in life. And here's the thing is we can't work for grace. The boxes won't get us grace. The boxes are insulting to grace. Um, it's like putting pennies into a Coke machine um, that only takes quarters. We're, we're using the wrong currency to get what we truly want out of life. So it's not going to be the boxes that's going to make us happy. We have to recognize our heart that it has an eternal capacity for eternal things and that only a spiritual solution can solve this spiritual problem. Okay, now I'm going to try to tie it all together. Um, it was not written, it was not, okay, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. Or it wasn't through the boxes of the law. It wasn't through the boxes of circumcision that Abraham was made right before God. Um, it wasn't that at all. Um, so the law is anything that we ultimately use to feel good about ourselves. And so the crux of the issue is this, that we're using physical things to satisfy a spiritual need. We can't do that. Like if you go to, out to lunch today and you ask the waiter and you say, hey, um, I'll take a bowl of gasoline and a glass of antifreeze, you know, easy on the ice. I, I, obviously you're not going to do that. You're going to order a cheeseburger and salad and stuff like that. So why are we trying to, you know, we need human food and much like our hearts need spiritual food, but we're using physical things to fill it and it can never make us happy. And we're on this endless treadmill of trying to find peace and contentment when only Christ can offer you that. That's why you have to go to the next party. And, and you think, like, I don't have to party. I don't have to drink. I don't have to be. You do have to do that because you're a slave to that. You can't do otherwise because that's your greatest value. And you are a slave to your values. And until Christ becomes a greater value than that, you won't be set free from that stuff. My biggest impediment to becoming a Christian was the fact that I love to party. I love doing all these other things because that was my greatest value. And when Christ became a greater value than that, I saw that, that I didn't need that. In fact, I stopped hanging. I had no, zero friends because I thought, like, you know, Christ was more valuable than my partying friends. And it, there's a time where you make a commitment to what you believe to be true, and you become a, the man or woman of God that you ought to become, and you let the other things slide off your life. Um, okay, so our soul does not need these boxes. It needs grace. Okay, now what if you choose to say, you know what? Forget it. I'm not going to live... I'm going to live according to the boxes. I like my life. You know, Christ is going to be a great amenity to my life. You know, he's going to be like a good sideline item, but he's not going to be the main focus. I'm going to choose to live according to the boxes. And, and Abraham says here if, that if you choose to do that, then faith has no value, the promise is worthless, and God's wrath is upon you. Because ultimately you're saying, you know what? Your son can't satisfy me. You know, he says, I, I give you joys at my right hand. There's, there's, there's joy every more in Jesus Christ. And we're saying, no, I don't believe that. I'm saying that these boxes that are actually rubbish, 
these boxes will make me happy. And then God's condemnation is upon us. Okay, but if we choose in faith to believe in God, he says grace is guaranteed. We get all the joy and happiness that we're looking for and that Abraham is our spiritual father. Okay, let's move on. What is the composition of Abraham's faith? What did his faith look like? Instead of reading all this, I've kind of highlighted some of the major points. Faith looks like this. It goes against all hope, that he believed in hope. He did not weaken in his faith. He did not waver in unbelief. And he was strengthened in his faith because he was persuaded that God could do what he promised. Okay, so we understood that the promise to Abraham was like, you'll have many kids, you'll get this land, you'll be blessed and stuff like that. But what is the promise to us? We need to have faith like this, but what is the promise? What do we need to believe in? And so he says here, the words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So when we trust God, when we have this faith, and like faith is like a, is like a hose that water travels through or like a, a wire that electricity, the current goes through. When we have this faith connection with God, he gives us grace because we believe and say, God, I believe that this stuff won't make me happy. Only you can make me happy and that honors God and he gives us grace. Um, and so, let's see, where am I? So the question is, do we have the same faith as Abraham? Do we have this unshakable faith that God's able to justify us and forgive, forgive us of our sins? Um, or are we still working for grace? Are we still going after the boxes? As the Jews went after the law and circumcision to make them feel, feel, feel right and also be right before God, you know, are you trying to satisfy that spiritual need with a physical answer? Um, are you still using the boxes in life? So what do we do? We've got to recognize that the boxes exist and we have to pinpoint them. And then we also have to recognize what we're truly hungering after. And I think here's the thing. The reason why this is so valuable to you is because this isn't. And the reason why this is not valuable to you is because you don't read your Bible, you don't study the Scripture, you don't know the character of God, and you don't see him as valuable because you're not investing in that. You do spend time reading the magazines about what things are in style and what's the great tires and what size do you need and all this. You spend time doing all that other stuff because, and that becomes valuable to you. But you don't give the same intensity and passion to these other things that are, are more valuable to you, that, that actually supply the real answer. And so where are you spending your time? This is not valuable simply because you don't spend any time looking for it or searching it out. Um, that you've dropped out of D-teams or you don't go to a small group Bible study. I mean, the fact that you're here today is wonderful. God bless you guys for doing that. But it doesn't end here. This is just the beginning point for you guys. Okay, so the next thing. Um, we have to not value this. And the only way we can not value this is by valuing this more. You can't just choose to say, okay, I'm going to drop my boxes. Because of that sucking sound in your heart, you'll pick up something else. And if it isn't Christ, it's going to be something else. So you have to make this less valuable by making this more valuable. Okay, so God's created eternity in our hearts and that we have to trust Christ. And when we trust Christ, you become a child of God. And, and that's just, child of God, three words. It seems very boring. But the whole Bible is packed with information in terms of what that means to you truly. The eternal life, the forgiveness, that God's wrath is not upon you. That when Christ returns and all those who don't know him and he annihilates them, that he crushes them in, in the wine press of his fury, that you, are, you, you don't have to face that because you, Christ has taken your sins away. And so there's, there's a lot to that that we have to sort of uncover and scratch below the surface to, to know and to believe. So once we have this in our heart, this confidence that comes by faith and grace, we're able to do the stuff that we, we want to do. Um, 
And this illustration is sort of like this, that if you're in a dating relationship and you really like that person, then there's generally nothing that you won't do for that person. But if you're in a dating relationship and you really don't like that person, it's a chore. And you have to find out reason. You're just looking for the time to break up with that person. And then everything, every smile on your face is just deceptive. And it's work and it's labor. And that's what a Christian is who doesn't love God but is trying to do all this stuff. It's labor to you. But when you love, when you love God and, you're, and you have a passion just for, for knowing him, all this stuff is just a layup shot. It's easy. It's an easy deal. Okay. Now let's say you're not there. Let's say there's boxes in your life that you value more than God. What do you do? Now, I'm going to give you two simple, easy things that you guys can commit to, um, and it doesn't take any time in your week. <clears throat> the first one is this. Pray these three words at all time. Put post-its. And, and I'm just saying this is from a subjective experience. When I'm in this position, what I do, um, put post-its in your car, um, by your you know, mirror in your bathroom, put a rubber band around your wrist, and whenever you see it, remember yourself to pray these three words. And it simply changed my heart. That you know your heart's not right. You know your heart is valuing these boxes and not Jesus as, as you ought to. So pray that. God, change my heart. When you know you're doing something you shouldn't do, God, change my heart. You know, when you're not maybe studying the scriptures, maybe when you should, God, change my heart. And mean that. And pray it time and time again and cry out to God. Um, the next thing. <clears throat> Get involved in a small group. Um, God has blessed the high school ministry at Christ Chapel with four master's degrees from seminary. And, and that's, most churches in the nation don't even have four master's degrees. And many don't even have one. And I don't say that to boast, but we, the church really takes a theological education um, very valuable. It's very important. And so we want to conv- communicate that to you. And so we get educated so we can educate you. And so we believe that our D teams, um, in terms of how we train our leaders and what it does for you guys, hopefully... Um, you guys need to come. Um, uh, you need to come and then be committed. And if you have a bad time or you didn't get along with someone or you know, it was boring one day, come. Be committed. Stick with it. Um, have faith. Don't waver. As, as Abraham didn't do those things, you don't do those things as well. Well, stick to it and be committed. Um, so working for grace. Are you working for grace? What's in your box? You know, as Abraham, again, um, was the Jews had the boxes of the law and of circumcision, what is in your box? And, and I pray that you're able to find value in Christ and remove these boxes so you'll truly have what you're looking for, and that's complete acceptance and love from Christ. Um, would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for um, this morning. And um, Lord, we're all beggars. God, I, I confess, Lord, that I am a beggar, and I stand on the street corner, and I'll take, it seems, anything to make me happy. Um, but I know, God, that only you will truly make me happy. Only you will I find that eternal source of satisfaction and delight. And I pray, God, for my friends in this room that um, Christ will become the most precious thing, um, our greatest treasure, and our greatest pleasure. Would you change our hearts continually? Um, Bless us, God, not because we deserve it, but because Christ um, has uh, earned that for us. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.